Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Just as a quick note, if our episode sounds different to you, that's because we're recording outside of our studio, practicing social distancing. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director, Alan Bondi, to discuss the reemergence of B2B marketplaces. Welcome, Alan. Hey, great to be here. So, Alan, let's start with maybe a little history or reflection, because it feels like marketplaces have been around for quite some time from the dot-com days. So what's happening now with this sort of growing resurgence of B2B marketplaces? Yeah, it's funny because when we talk to clients or we sort of look at prior art, you find a lot of coverage of this topic back in in 1999 and 2000 and 2001. And um, so it's a, it's not a new idea, but yet there's a number of forcing functions that are bringing this sort of style of online commerce back. And even just comparing and contrasting what's happening now versus what was happening then, um, it's kind of an interesting exercise because um, if you understand that history, you also can see why things didn't necessarily take off the first time around, right? You had people like Dell um, making sort of a big fanfare back in 2000, uh, but yet both the buyers and the sellers weren't necessarily ready yet at scale to be buying and selling in business products, especially, right? There's a whole bunch of consumer examples, you know, from eBay to Etsy to specialty marketplaces that we we know and love as consumers, but most of our focus has been on sort of the rise or the return of business to business marketplaces. And, you know, we're focusing a lot on the tech part of that, but do know that there's marketplaces in pretty much every industry sector, you know, from chemicals to construction materials to general business services to healthcare. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But if you look specifically at the tech market, so the buying and selling of hardware and software and networking equipment, and even uh, certain types of tech services, you've got sort of a, uh, a perfect storm of buyers really wanting more self-serve options overall, right? This is the rise of e-commerce and the, and the slow ticking up of e-commerce as share of overall B2B selling. And that's slowly ticking up, you know, 14%, 15%-ish in terms of e-commerce as share of all B2B selling. So still a lot of upside, but you have more and more buyers coming into the market who, you know, are either more uh, progressive in their thinking about how they want to buy things. You know, maybe they it's generational, maybe it's um, buyers in a non-traditional purchasing role. Right. So I'm buying products as a market or I'm buying products in an accounting team. And so you've got this whole convergence of buyers wanting more uh, self-serve options. And in some ways, they don't really want to or need to deal with sort of the old school salesperson, even though in many cases they do. Right. You look at manufacturers and this topic really started percolating probably a year, year and a half ago in some of the conversations we were having with manufacturing clients. Mm -hmm. And to a person, they were thinking about digital, but they were also looking at expanding their business. And they realized that, hey, we have dealers, say, in the US, but we want to sell in China. We're not going to set up a dealer network in China. Maybe we should sell through something like Alibaba or WeChat. And we heard that time and time again. And you realize that there was a reason both for buyers to go online, but also sellers to expand their business by going through new channels. And those things kind of came together. 
And I feel like we've been talking about the consumerization of the B2B buyer. Is that, I'm assuming that's on the buy side of the equation, part of this equation, just in general, sort of expectations of consumers in our day-to-day lives are bringing those expectations to business engagements and our work life. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And that was like an early part. And we've been writing about this for a few years, sort of the uh, the idea that business to business starts to, you squint and it starts to look more like business to consumer, which in certain aspects of the online experience, that's absolutely the case in terms of the importance of search or the importance of good content or uh, ratings and reviews or um, the types of sort of community aspect you know, of, of social sharing of, of deals or things like that. That's some of it. I think when, when we first did that research, it was very specific around sort of the end user digital experience, the, the interface, the expectation of uh, ease of use and performance and things like that. So I think that's part of it. Another interesting aspect is just the idea of, and sort of you can call it the Amazon effect, right? Which is um, pricing transparency and sort of moving to simplified pricing. And this isn't just a consumer thing. This is this is sort of a SaaS software thing. And when I talk to people about sort of what's the future of marketplaces, I kind of half joke that the crystal ball is actually what's happening in SaaS. It's, it's the SaaS marketplaces, it's Salesforce App Exchange and it's AWS Marketplace as characteristics of consumer style marketplaces. But be very clear, it's set up for hardcore business. You know, you can... Uh, have custom pricing, you can have uh, a way to manage your portfolio. So I think there's aspects that are influenced by consumer trends. And I'll, and I'll put pricing right in there, right? Buyers want more pricing transparency. They want to understand how they can compare different suppliers. And a lot of traditional B2B is just not set up that way. You know, you get a special deal and you over there, you get a special deal and talk to your guy or talk to your gal. They'll set you up and discounting. And if you've worked in enterprise software, enterprise hardware, as I have, you know, the deal desk and the custom deals and everybody sort of gets some kind of special deal. Marketplaces, in, in a way, are a reaction to that, which is, wait a minute. You know, I want to pay what others are paying, or I want to see what the price is. And that's just very foreign to a lot of B2B sellers. And so I think marketplaces at the sort of request of buyers are saying, no, no, you've got to list your pricing. And in the case of like Amazon or more progressive marketplaces, that pricing may actually change based on demand. And so I think price transparency uh, is important. And then if you zoom out, why do consumers overall use marketplaces? It's still because of lower price. Mm-hmm. And so that some of that's the reason why business-to-business buyers are using marketplaces, but not always, like convenience, availability. Um, good example I heard at one of the events I spoke at was if you're in the construction business, so hardcore, you know, building big buildings, and, you know, you need certain materials on site, there's marketplaces that can deliver the rebar or the, the drywall or the fixtures, but oftentimes it's for that buyer, sort of the direct procurement and just, just sort of a quick definition, right? When we talk about marketplace, we talk about indirect and direct. Mm-hmm. So indirect purchasing is the stuff that the business buys to run the business, like the computers and the, the water coolers and the desks. Direct procurement is the parts that go into what you're building. So if you're if you're in the building business, direct would be the you know, the materials that go into the building. Indirect would be the computers and the tractors and the the stuff that sort of helps you build it. 
when it comes to direct procurement, oftentimes it's not about price. It's about availability. It's about reliability. You know, if I don't meet my deadline to get the next floor of the building built next week, you know, I'll pay a big penalty. I don't care if I pay twice as much for the rebar. So knowing that there seems to be a lot of sort of like leveling the playing field from the buy side, and you had mentioned this in your example, kind of opening up from a seller's perspective, um, their available market. Do sellers really have a choice if buyers are demanding more transparency and availability and so on and so forth? Yeah, in, in, in an ideal world, they would just naturally go to where the buyers are. And we've seen this in some of our manufacturing accounts where there's a perceived threat from, for example, Amazon business, right, which is growing by leaps and bounds as a business marketplace. Um, there's concern that they lose control, for example, if their parts, their equipment appears on Amazon business, because Amazon owns that relationship, right? Um, and so in some cases, the first response is, oh, no, we, we, don't, want, we don't want to talk about Amazon. You know, we're just going to sell through our channels and, you know, maybe we'll build our own marketplace, which is a whole different discussion, which we can touch on because certainly businesses are doing that. And if you look at the opportunity, if if you have certain market presence and you have the ability to create a platform, um, there's a lot of benefit to be the owner of that marketplace. But many companies aren't really set up for that. Uh, but the point is that, yes, ultimately, you need to go where your customers are at the risk of, you know, your competitors may already be there. But there's a lot of friction. And in B2B especially, think about distributors and wholesalers and sort of all the different steps that from you make the product through how it's getting distributed out and then ultimately being delivered either directly or through retail or something like that, that the distribution relationships may slow down how certain manufacturers can, in fact, use marketplaces. But also at the same time, those distributors are rethinking, should they become more like a marketplace? So there's a lot of dynamics here. This is where B2B actually becomes a lot more complicated than B2C. Yeah, I was going to say the ecosystem or the supply chain has a palpable impact as to who is ready when to actually make this happen, right? Like you're so dependent on a few layers removed from your own firm. No, no, hundred percent. And, and you may have unique relationships. You may have exclusive mm -hmm. relationships as a manufacturer with certain distribution channels that say you can only sell through them. And we've just been doing some research with one of our clients, looking at this whole dynamic between how manufacturers view, for example, Amazon versus how distributors view Amazon. And pretty much you can say that manufacturers generally view Amazon as a attractive channel that they want to try, except when they view Amazon as a threat. And right. distributors generally view Amazon as a threat, except when they don't. So there's so much nuance in this, but you're right that there's usually an opportunity for most manufacturers to at least run experiments and carve out some portion of their product line or even create new products that could be at least test marketed through a variety of marketplaces, or they could test it themselves. Um, many of these same manufacturers, especially in tech, if we look just at the tech space, they already have online stores or e-stores. Mm -hmm. And there's a nuance here, right, for the, for the listeners, which is what's the difference between an e-store and a marketplace? And our definition is that a marketplace really is a governed, hosted environment that brings together third-party buyers and sellers. So the third-partiness is really essential. 
but but the transaction the the fulfillment is done through the third party so amazon may take the money but everything else is sort of happening between the buyer and the seller an e-store has some of the same mechanisms but an e-store like operated by hewlett-packard would just feature hewlett-packard products a marketplace operated by hewlett-packard would feature a whole range of third-party software and hardware and things like that and that's the yeah, you, you play a very different role when you're repping other people's products than when you're just repping your own. Yeah, that's a different business. Right? It's a, it's it's a just, very different business. Yeah, that's not just having a digital presence. That's having a completely different set of functionality. And you know, well, you're, well, you're creating demand in, in, you know, you're still creating the demand for your own e-store, but usually an e-store operated by most tech companies is sort of an adjunct to the business in, in a number of cases they're offering products that are not available through their channel, right? They don't want to compete with the channel. If you're operating a marketplace, you basically become the channel and you also take on the role of, you know, driving demand and audience for that marketplace, or it's not going to be a very successful marketplace, right? If, you know, why do I want to put my product on your marketplace? You know, if I'm starting up a tech company tomorrow and in my startup days, we had some add-ons, for example, that worked with, um, with Salesforce, because it's a really good example. You know, there's lots of good SaaS marketplace examples, but AppExchange is a particularly good example. Um, if I'm working in that sort of Salesforce ecosystem, I want to be an AppExchange, not just because it's a channel, but because it's an attractor for demand, right? So Salesforce, it's, critical mass is essential to launching a marketplace. But once you achieve that critical mass, there's the direct benefit for buyers and sellers of variety and but also for the host of the marketplace, there's benefits in terms of being able to monetize that. So, um, I mean, I guess the, the the capper on this part of the discussion is how you think about marketplaces sort of depends on who you are. But also, once you commit, say, as a seller to get involved, there's a whole bunch of options. So, App Exchange is a good one. Um, if you're selling general business products, pretty much in any category. You know, Amazon Business and Alibaba are two of the biggest, like general marketplaces. Each of them have over 100,000 sellers already. Um, and then there's a lot of specific industry marketplaces. So again, for construction materials or medical equipment or commodity goods, there's literally a couple hundred of these that we're tracking, many of which are still emerging. So they're not at critical mass, but they've raised a lot of money. So I know we talked in spots about the benefits of marketplaces for sellers and buyers, but I think it would be helpful to encapsulate like three or four of the core benefits um, for both of those audiences. Yeah, for sure. Because if you think about marketplaces as a, a style of business, and in fact, if you look at work that Ted Chadler and Nigel Fennick and others have done around platform businesses, um, an astute listener would say, hey, wait a minute, you're just describing digital platform businesses. And in fact, marketplaces are just a flavor of digital platform and a characteristic of a digital platform, why people want to build them or participate in them is that there is a mix of benefits for all the parties. So there really are benefits for buyers and sellers and the hosts of the platform. So, you know, if you talk about time to market for vendors and speed and cost effectiveness for buyers, those are both benefits that, that both parties share. So I'd say I would start with that. You know, the, we, we even in work that I've done with Liz Herbert on the buy side of marketplaces, we talk about a persona as a speed is everything buyer. Um, 
by the way, we're seeing a lot of those buyers right now with the whole COVID situation, you know, very directed purchasing. I need to find this part. I need to source uh, this supply for my hospital as a consumer. I need to find toilet paper right now. Um, so, so speed almost trumps cost in many cases when there's urgency, it's about availability. It's not about cost, but yeah, it's still a benefit of marketplaces is creating competition and creating options, um, which is mostly good for buyers, sort of good for sellers. And this gets back to if, if I'm in a certain commodity business, in a way I want to sort of keep things to myself. Um, if I'm in sort of a unique product area where there's good margins and I just want to get access to new markets, then you know I'm okay trading a little bit of that margin for access to new markets. But generally, speed um, is is an important benefit for both buyers and sellers. Um, specifically to sellers, and this is a version of getting into new markets, visibility into what the demand is, is a huge benefit. And you trade this off, say, when you work with Amazon. So generally, right, most manufacturers think of Amazon as a attractive channel to try out. In many cases, because it opens up new audiences, but also when you sell through a digital environment, almost always you're getting more data and more visibility than if you're selling through a traditional channel, right? For those of us who've worked with sales organizations, um, shocker, salespeople tend to keep details to themselves, you know, in terms of conversations they had or what customers want, because there's power in sort of consolidating that knowledge in a digital marketplace or digital environment, you typically get better visibility. And especially in a marketplace, um, when you're in a category with multiple players, you get much more visibility, like in a CPG kind of a way, right? In terms of what's selling on the shelf. And this is even a um, sort of a, a point that we make in some of our research in the piece I did on think uh, SKUs, not SOWs. I, I bring up this idea that sellers in this environment really need to think more like CPGs. Yep. And I mean that literally in terms of understanding what's on the digital shelf, what the price sensitivity is, what packaging is needed, what content is needed, you know, what's sell through. I mean, these are kind of like CPG retail type motions. Just jumping in on that point, because we, we spoke with um, Jennifer Bellasson about data literacy and data programs and just availability of data and how that's really foundational to becoming customer obsessed. So for sellers in the B2B space, um, this is like un untapped data and information about how to serve your buyers better too, it feels like. Oh, 100%. And, and now whether those sellers are equipped to both right. gather and yep. interpret and make actionable that data is a different question, which is, again, why our recommendation to many manufacturers who maybe aren't that great is to start developing some of those muscles and skills. And I'll keep on coming back to this point, sort of like, hey, yeah, you sell big um, you know, industrial machinery. But in this environment, you have to think more like a CPG company and not literally. I mean, there's, you know, maybe you're not doing the volumes that a CPG company would do. And maybe you don't have as many competitors and you're not going to do TV spots like a CPG brand. But the motions in terms of collecting data and, and acting on it quickly is very much a CPG style right. motion. Yep. Um, the other aspect, and, and I think this is more of a digital thing in general, is think about consumer marketplaces and the, the role of ratings and reviews and social proof, you know, this is established in the consumer world. It's not as established in the B2B world. 
arguably some vendors don't want that, right? Which is, you know, I don't want all all of my users sharing exactly how hard it was to do this install and how slow we were sending out this patch or things like that. Um, but we see that the market will sort of demand more of that and it sort of follows transparent pricing. So if you've got the product listed on the digital shelf next to other similar products and the marketplace host says, oh yeah, you need to show the price. There's no more like click here to get pricing or call us for pricing. Mm -hmm. We also think that that same impact will uh, drive demand for user reviews and you know community feedback and things like that. And already we're seeing it in some, I guess, more progressive sellers, but I think this will happen across all categories. You know, why not? If, if you are happy with that widget, you know, you're probably going to post a review and say, you know, hey, it works great in this application, but, you know, it doesn't work um, if you have this other thing. Why not share that content? And that's why I think, you know, another impact of the rise of marketplace as a channel is more and more business to business companies are going to have to master content marketing, right? This is, this is a muscle that maybe they just haven't had to do or their distributors did it for them. They're going to have to figure out how to spin up you know, good product photography and, uh, you know, rich media walkthroughs and all that stuff, which may be a challenge, but is a huge opportunity for sort of the helpers, right? The agencies, we already see quite a bit of demand for agencies helping manufacturers spin up, you know, studios so they can take 3D photography of their products, for example. So, Alan, let's dig in a little bit on the, on the seller side of things, because, you know, you touched a little bit on like, is the seller ready for a marketplace, but how does a seller know if their buyers are, are ready or if their customer base or the majority of their customer base um, is ready for a marketplace model? So this is a great topic and um, a little plug here, right? I'm going to be speaking about this at SD Summit um, in terms of selling on marketplaces. So you mentioned earlier customer obsession. There's a lot of plays here that come out of sort of the consumer world in terms of, you know, what does your customer base look like in terms of their digital maturity, in terms of their consumption of online channels, in terms of, you know, where they sit in an organization, are they able to buy in this model? And I think this is back to some of the work that Liz and I did at the end of last year, where there's traditional IT buyers. And again, this will be mostly focused to tech uh, buyers and sellers. You know, there are certain processes in organizations where they are limited in terms of who they can buy from. Maybe they have established relationships with certain sellers or distributors, and they're kind of locked into those. So reaching them through a new channel may just not be possible now. There's policies about how they have to get certain quotes, and they're not kind of set up for these sort of buying motions. Meanwhile, there's at least two other groups that are, right? These sort of speed of ev speed is everything buyers that are less bound by those policies or they work around them or they're in organizations that just are not as traditionally minded in terms of procurement. And then there's all the line of business buyers. And there's an awful lot of buying that's now happening outside of traditional procurement. And you know our whole focus on the future of buying points at all these new modalities where it's not a central group selling to a central group, it's very distributed. So the more that sellers can understand sort of what their customer base looks like, they can target some of those personas that are ready for this. And then it's a question of looking at what they're selling. Because just because your buyers are ready for it doesn't mean that your products are ready to be sold this way. And there's sort of a general bit of guidance, which is, can you, um, you know, easily list and even configure the product online 
Um, if so, it might be possible to sell this way. If if it has to be, if it's very complex or it has to be built by a distributor or dealer, um, it's probably unlikely that you're going to sell the first deal through a marketplace, but you may sell all of the add-ons. Mm. So look at software. You know, if you're buying SAP or buying Oracle or buying Salesforce, the first purchase, that's unlikely it's going to happen through a marketplace, right? That's a, It's a complex deal. There's a lot of configuration, but the add-ons to that software, it's more and more likely that you will buy that through a marketplace. So um, we actually have this decision framework, and this came out in some of the work that Liz and I and a bunch of other helpers did at the second half of last year. And it's geared again towards tech. We break it into sellers who are selling direct versus sellers who are selling indirect through a channel. Turns out that if you're, if you're already selling through a channel, you, it's kind of easier to move certain products onto a marketplace. But if you're selling direct, we break it into sort of top level categories, software, hardware, and services, and then break it further into sort of you know first time purchase versus second time purchase. Are you selling to central IT versus line of business? Are you uh, able to describe the product sort of with a skew? And this is sort of, again, it was in the t- title of one of the pieces, right? If, if you can put a skew on it, then you can likely sell it. And then it's a question of if your buyers want to buy it that way. If you can't put a skew on it, and it's more of a you know SOW, like complex services, and eh, that's not going to happen anytime online. So I think it's all about sort of where it fits in the spectrum of purchasing and then how skewable it is, except where, you know, if, if it's not skewable, but there's a, a big reason to sell it online, right? The cost of selling it traditionally is way too much. We're seeing people figure out how to make it skewable. That's a that's a broader discussion. But what are the risks involved in, in moving this way? And you know, if you're thinking about, okay, is the product skewable? Yes, my my buyers are ready. It feels like there may be some risk or security concerns with going down this path that need to be considered before you say, yep, we're gonna do this. So like any type of online transaction. Um, there could be some risk built into that um, beyond sort of the the security and the technology risks. Are all marketplaces equally trustworthy? Who's to say, right? If, if an upstart is well capitalized and it seems to have good backers, you know, maybe they don't have the track record. I think a lot of business to business buying is through trusted relationships. So I think it's a question almost of I'll, I'll switch it. Is is it risk or is it trust? Mm, and yep. in some cases, the newer providers have yet to build their reputation or their trust. Doesn't mean that they aren't. Um, could there be, this has come up in a few engagements, right? Are there risks from gray market products or uh, knockoff products being sold? In certain categories, absolutely. And, you know, even a provider or a marketplace like Amazon's not immune to that, right? So when you have a large market, a big community, there's some bad actors. And um, if it's it's not a trusted supplier or you're not really sure where the source is, I think that is a risk in certain categories. Um, It's somewhat counterbalanced with this idea of, go back to the Salesforce example, not to overplay app exchange, but they've they've done well. They were a leader in Liz's uh, new wave for SaaS marketplaces. We use them as sort of an example of what's possible with the software marketplace. Those styles of marketplaces that that vet the solutions, right, that they certify that it works with Salesforce or AWS certifies that it works with uh, the AWS cloud or whatnot. Um, On the sell side, are there risks? Yeah, there are some risks if 
you know, you may start to um, bump up against new competitors that you're not ready to compete with, you know, back to this digital shelf. Uh, if, if you're not owning the channel, you know, Amazon or other hosts, you know, maybe placing other products next to your product that you never competed with, and that's a risk. There's also the idea, and it's somewhat, you know, urban legend, but when you talk to manufacturers, mostly they don't think of Amazon as a threat. And we'll, we're talking about Amazon business here. But in some cases, there are examples of where uh, if you're selling certain you know, high volume items and you're selling it through Amazon, Amazon has the data and they're like, hmm, this category is pretty interesting. Um, you know, can Amazon, can the host compete with you at some point? Sure they can because they're getting that data. And, you know, as the host of the marketplace, that I think that risk is somewhat overblown, except when it's not. And I go back to the comment that, you know, manufacturers generally view Amazon as a positive thing and as a channel that they want to take advantage of, except when they view it as a competitor. Yeah. I mean, in the consumer space, we've talked a lot about the relationship between the brand and the consumer. And when you put things like Amazon or, you know, an Alexa in between the brand and the consumer, are you, are you losing, you know, the connection points or the brand affinity? Oh, oh you are. Brand, no, right? no question you are. But how viable of a concern is that in the B2B space at this juncture? I mean, I think it, it's less an issue. And as we start to think about segmenting different types of B2B sellers, it's less of a concern if you're already sort of a, a direct seller that is less digitally sophisticated. And this is net new functionality or net new channel. So it's it's almost all upside selling through one of these marketplaces. You're, you're not in a position to sort of turn down that access to new audience. If you're more sophisticated, um, you know, an online seller of uh, office supplies, for example, where the experience is very much a part of the value add, the service delivery, and you start to disintermediate that through the two businesses, they're the ones who are most viewing Amazon or others as a threat. And the card that they play is, listen, people don't just come to us because of assortment and cost savings. They come to us because we're a trusted provider. We we get you your order on time every week and we can have business services that layer on top. So I think the more sophisticated sellers are more concerned about that experience and they're less likely to want to disintermediate that experience. But in many cases, they already have, you know, well, in some cases, their own marketplace. So they're directly competing um, with an Amazon because they are an alternative to Amazon. But most people are not like that. And it roughly tracks how we look at digital maturity, right? The latest data, uh, Ted Shadler started to publish some of this out, is roughly 15% of organizations are digitally advanced. And then the balance of 85% are beginners or intermediates. The beginners and intermediates are mostly looking at marketplaces as like net new audience, net new customers. The advanced ones are more directly competing with Amazon. So what advice do you have for those leaders who have a bad taste in their mouth from the marketplaces of old, you know, from the early 2000s that you referenced uh, earlier in this episode? So it's an interesting question because those of us who were covering those marketplaces uh, sort of looked fondly at that era, which is, oh, we were so silly back then. We thought if you just stood up a site and, you know, you got enough uh, products in it that people would come. And it mostly was not the case, except in really, you know, niche areas. Um, I mean, the answer is two things. One is, boy, a lot has changed in 20 or so years. 
you know, back to the discussion of, of buyer behavior and what's important to buyers today. And you could say this is becoming more acute with um, sort of the, the, the COVID crisis. You know, buyers are looking not just for value, but convenience. I, I would say right now, inter, you know, near term, convenience and availability are trumping almost every other attribute of marketplaces. And if I'm looking for a certain product, I'm most likely, I may be going onto Google to search, but I may be going onto Amazon to search, or I may be looking at another sort of industry marketplace. So um, that's very different, right? That, that the availability of choices and also the assortments, the, the thousands and millions of products that these marketplaces have, you know, you're likely to search and start there, uh, which attracts new sellers. And then the tooling is just so much better, right? You you can go into any one of the SaaS marketplaces and you can research and compare and manage your portfolio and automatically manage your renewals and look at reviews that, that the technology is a generation or two ahead of what was around 20 years ago. Um, so I think there's just so many more reasons that buyers are being attracted. And then where there's buyers, there's sellers. So, you know, for a seller, unless you really are invested in your own sort of proprietary channels, or you're just selling something that is so niche and so specialized, pretty much everybody else, you have to go where the audience is, especially in this time of, you know, trying to transition from acquisition to loyalty. And so I think people are going to do that math and they're going to say, okay, maybe we give up a little bit of control, but we get access to a massive audience. We're okay with giving up some of that control. And even if the marketplace host at some point competes with us, that's okay because we'll you know, sell a bunch of items before that. So I think that's really what's changed is buyers are much more uh, comfortable buying online in general. The tools are so much better and sellers are realizing that um, digital channels are not just sort of a, you know, boutique adjunct, in many cases, they're going to be the primary route to market. So uh, pretty interesting time. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, you bet. If you want to hear more from Alan on this topic, be sure to check out our upcoming Summit 2020, which will be held virtually beginning on May 4th. To register, go to summit.seriousdecisions.com. Thanks for listening.